You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. So we were talking about right before we got on together here about how the narrative around well-being or health is kind of a little bit messed up in in what's been just the popular things that people say, and they've been saying it forever and yeah. forever. And so we all believe it to be true. Like for just for example, something like fat's what make people fat. Talk yeah. more to us about that. Yeah, I think one of the things that we were talking about is that if we hear something repeated enough, then we believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. Whether it's true or not, if you hear it enough times, it becomes the focal point, right? So people hang their hat on that. And one of those issues, at least from my perspective, is that we always talk about obesity as the end point, that we have this obesity problem. Do we have an obesity problem? Clearly. Is obesity where it starts? No. I don't believe that that's where it starts. And and I'm going to explain a little bit about what I mean. We talk about obesity over and over and over again. And it seems to me, and when I uh, say we talk about it, the paradigm, which is a working model by which we construct, that has been constructed, and we believe that everybody has been trying to fix this obesity problem for the last, I don't know, how many years? 50? Since since I've been born, I've (laughs) heard about it. Like decades and decades and decades. One of the things is I think that if we are asking the correct question, after a period of time, we should be able to find a solution to that question. If we are asking the wrong question, then the solution is always going to evade us. And that's what's happened with this obesity. Are we over fat? Yeah, but we're under muscled. And skeletal muscle right now is always the periphery. It's never the focal point of a discussion, unless, of course, we're talking about athletics or physique or or fitness. Then the skeletal muscle, which is the muscle under your voluntary control, it's your bicep and your quad, whatever, that is actually the pinnacle of health and well-being. And it's been completely ignored. For example, when we go into the doctor's office, they'll say, okay, well, your body fat percentage is this. You don't go in and go, okay, well, how strong are you? There's no metrics to assess strength routinely. I mean, I did it as a geriatrician, but in a routine physician's exam, have you ever been to a doc where they assess your strength? Um, I don't think they did strength. They did Body fat, they no, never strength. I I don't even know right. how do you right. assess strength actually. Right. That's that's I was going to ask. I mean, what are the numbers? Hand, what do you hand grip strength? Mm. You know, they'll they'll say how many times can you sit and stand, um, walking speed. You're young and healthy, it may not be as relevant for you, but for an older population, it, it perhaps is relevant. But I think that this constant focus on obesity is wrong. I think that these issues really begin in skeletal muscle decades before. And there's evidence to support that in the literature. Um, and insulin resistance and skeletal muscle, I think, is is the pinnacle, not the periphery. And that is an example of a common narrative that we have gotten wrong. We're still trying to correct the obesity problem, mm-hmm. which I think is a symptomology of, on one hand, impaired skeletal muscle. So help me out understand this a little bit more. So about 15, 16 months ago when my daughter was born, I had... Uh, 
you can say a moment of insight where I recognized that I was living a fairly unhealthy life. And I was because I was not somebody who would go to the gym. I would eat all right, but I wasn't like really looking at my nutrition, none of that stuff. And I grew up in India where we really didn't care. Like it really didn't matter. And I grew up in also a family which is strictly vegetarian, which is why it's really hard mm. for me. Even now I can't really eat meat. It's not possible for me psychologically. I can yeah. make that shift. And so only about 15 months ago did I come to the awareness of the fact that if I continue my life the way I was living, I'm not going to be able to enjoy my, my children's adulthood and my grandchildren is definitely not, right? And this observation came because I was looking at some of the grandparents of my children. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to be like that at 75. Like, I, I want to be a little bit, you know, actually be able to play with my grandkids if my kids choose to have some, you know? So I was like, this is a big aha moment. And that moment of insight started to change my narrative towards health. And one of the big things that shifted for me was strength training. It's again, I don't have the matrix to really know. And that's where my question comes is, so as I started doing it, the only measure that I was taking until now, now that you mentioned grip strength and all of that, I hadn't considered that, was the measure I was taking is how much more weight am I deadlifting? How much more weight that's am great. I squatting? Is that the right measure? Or are we talking about something completely different that one must consider? I think that a strength measure is absolutely important. How much are you squatting? Are you progressing? Especially if you are untrained, then you are going to have exponential increases in weight. And also your body is going to change much more rapidly than someone who has been trained, you know, trained for a very long period of time. Yes, those strength measurements are critical. So you're saying these are some of the measurements. What Absolutely. would be some of the measures that a person that is listening to this podcast should consider? What are like four or five things that we should look at? Squat, bench press, deadlift. I think that those are all very critical. I also think some of the things like how many push-ups can you do? Just so that you can see how strong are you in that position and what about a one-mile run if an individual is running? Mm -hmm. Those are a couple metrics that individuals could and should think about. But then also putting together a program in place and then holding yourself accountable and reevaluating the data. Mm -hmm. Did you get stronger? Are you running faster? Can you do more push-ups? And if you want to do pull-ups, can you do more pull-ups? Those kinds of things. Is there a measure where you have, okay, if you're 35 years old, this is what you should be able to do. If you're 45, this is what you should be able to do or everything is relative to where you are? I think a better way of thinking about it, so there are standards and there are metrics and it's typically based on untrained versus trained individuals. And then there's an athletic population and, you know, athletic and elite population. But I think it's very individual. And of course, it depends on the kind of training that the individual has done, right? So for example, my husband who's been well-trained his whole life, I'd love to see him run, mm -hmm. right? There are other ways in which we can think about physical strength, also improving mitochondria function, which would be cardiovascular types of activities. Um, so yes, is it mostly related to age, not necessarily. Hmm. So our audience is either life coaches, uh, health coaches, or they tend to be business coaches. These are 
typically the people that mm. we engage with in this particular podcast. And we have a large audience in Mind Valley that engages with individuals that are doing things. But with this particular podcast, Master Coaching Podcast, that's our focal mm. point. If there was somebody, and I can attest to most of the stuff that you're saying, because just in 15 months, I can see how much I have changed and people who have followed me have mm. gone, I just, you look different. You don't only like feel, of course, I feel completely different as a person, but how I even look different to the outside world is amazing and magnetic. And at the same point in time, I feel like the biggest struggle for me when I started was to get into that mode, especially for Always. an untrained person. Always. Like I've never done that until until the point. Is there something that you found? Because we were also briefly talking about it's not only about yeah. building muscle strength. It's also about how you approach that change. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we were chatting before and there's a couple things to address that point. Number one is you're never going to feel ready to probably do anything that is going to make you uncomfortable. There is a level of friction that is going to happen as you are starting something new, whether it is business, health coaching, life coaching, there's initial friction. For you, you may have not wanted to start training and there was probably friction, right? Like, oh, do I have to do it? Am I going to do it? Having yourself be held accountable by somebody other than yourself can be very valuable, especially if it's a new physical skill. Having a trainer or somebody is very valuable. I'm sure there are fitness professionals listening and they would appreciate me saying that, but it is absolutely true. Um, and also knowing that you're going to start before you're ready. And probably the biggest thing is knowing your own personal weaknesses. Talk to us more about that. I love that idea. Everybody yeah. focuses on strengths. I know these are my strengths. I can do this. I'm a great runner. I'm going to go keep running. But most people are not attuned to their personal weaknesses. And weaknesses are much more valuable to know and have in your back pocket because then you know where you fail and how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. And those are the most successful people that I have ever seen in all domains and the CEOs that I take care of. And, we, you know, we were talking, my husband is a Navy SEAL, the military operators, the warfighters, they are uniquely positioned and have thought a lot about where they fail and what their weaknesses are. So what you're saying that I'm understanding and that I think was great that you related it to individuals who are on the battlefield as well is that because they understand their weaknesses, they know when they will fail. Absolutely. And because they know when they will fail, they plan for what they will do when they're about to get into that zone. Is that what? what That's exactly right. And they are never surprised by their own human nature. Hmm. And how this would relate to someone who's starting on a health and wellness journey. There are going to be days where you don't feel like training. There are going to be days where you know that this is your nutrition plan that you've put in place, but your daughter had a birthday and you're going to eat half the birthday cake. They are never surprised by their own human weaknesses or their own human nature. They plan for it. And they rehearse what they're going to do prior to being in the firing zone. For example, if someone is listening and they know that they have embarked on a new health and wellness journey, but they're traveling, they already have a, a game plan in place to assure their success. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, so I have two very little children, very little children, and I got up really early. Both were screaming, went to the airport, and, uh, you know, it's like complete disaster zone in New York for um, getting on a flight. I knew that I had missed my training session. So on Saturday mornings, I always train. 
And that's part of the commitment that I've made to myself. And it's part of my protocol and my program. I had planned to get off the plane, go right to the podcast, right after a podcast, go find a place to train. Do you think I wanted to train? That's the last thing I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Especially with a book deadline and all those other things. But I packed my workout clothes. I didn't have an excuse. I knew I was going to get to the point where I wasn't going to want to do it. And I may tell myself I'm too tired or I'm not going to do it. No. So I reached out to a friend. I'm like, hey, so I'm landing. I'm going to do this. We're going to train. I planned for it. And And did I execute? Yeah, I could barely move this morning. (laughs) (laughs) So, So tell me a little bit more about that because I know that's one of those things that we study a lot in the coaching world is because the biggest challenge that people have a lot of the times is not that they don't know what to do, but it's more about not being able to do what they know they should be doing. If we ask anybody after this podcast, they'll be like, absolutely, I should strengthen and you should too. But will they do it or not is where everything kind of changes. Yeah, um, that is where it becomes really important to merge the current self with the future self. And if you can collapse those two, you will always make decisions in line with who you want to be not necessarily who you are at that moment. What does that mean? That means that if you want to be strong for your children and your grandchildren, you have to understand that maybe you're not an athlete and maybe you never wanted to train and you want to become strong, capable, and resilient, then every action must meet who you are becoming. It's not about waiting for motivation. Motivation may never come. You cannot wait to feel motivated. You cannot um, plan to start tomorrow or any of those other things. You have to deeply become deeply inspired by who you want to be. And, you know, I was talking to your beautiful wife. And one of the things that has been so profound for me and an impact that has been so profound for me. So I'm a geriatrician by training. Mm-hmm. A geriatrician is someone who takes care of people 65 and up and really at the end of life, right? So it's that last decade or so, final decade, two decades. And unfortunately or fortunately, I've spent more time than I'd like to at the bedside of people that were dying. It's just not a great situation and I can't say I particularly liked it. But what I will say is there's one thing more painful than death for people. You know what that is? Regret. Mm. Regret for who they could have been. And it's not just in terms of work. It's the unran marathon. It's the unaccomplished goal. It's the thing that I could have written a book, but I never did. It's all these little things. And so the regret is really, at the end of life, what I have seen to be more painful than the actual death in and of itself. So you're like, well, why are we talking about that? Because if you know that nobody gets out alive, mm-hmm. unfortunately, last time I checked, nobody <laughs> gets out of this life alive. And if we don't have that end in mind, then we're much more likely to put off the actual execution of the thing that is going to make us globally strong and fulfill our potential. Mm. And by understanding that we all have an end and that there is a certain level of urgency that needs to happen, then you'll practice and you'll think about it and you'll execute sooner rather than later. 
because there is a point in time where that gap closes and who you want to become will always be in the future. So if you can close the gap between who you want to become and who you are and make decisions every day on who that person is and who has the qualities and the grit and the resilience and the personality of the person you want to become and you execute on that, like what would that person do? You'll close that gap. Mm. So the first step would be to actually know who you are becoming. Yeah. Yeah. And once you know who you're becoming to see... What is it that needs to happen on a daily basis for you to realize that person every single day? Would, would you exactly. say that's, that's what are the, the qualities, what are yeah. the attributes, and understand that that needs to be executed on. If you act in accordance with who you are, then you will always be that person. Mm. Rather than if you act in accordance with who you want to become and what are the characteristics and the attributes of that person you want to become, and you focus on acting on that, then you have a chance to closing the gap between who you are and your future self. Beautiful, beautiful. And could you, and I'm just speaking more to it, and, and I totally love that concept, and I think it's very, very true and fair, and I think that was kind of an example of also what probably happened for me in that moment of insight is where I, I know who I'm becoming to live the best of my life, even at the age that most people will be like, oh, now, you know, it's a different way of living right. life. And maybe that's where my trigger happened. And what I want to know is, in your experience, you've found something specifically that gets people to stay in action on a day-to-day basis. And the reason why I ask that question is, while there is that gap that you're talking yeah. about and the ambition to bridge that gap, what I found myself in mm-hmm. is sometimes I'll fall for the trap of the immediate gratification, which is our But you know that mind. you're going to do that. Yes. Right? So now you know that that is your human nature. Mm. So you should be able to plan for that because it's going to happen tomorrow. Mm. Sunday, it's gonna maybe it happened today, but yeah. you know that that's gonna happen, so you better plan for that. So you plan for that by creating what am I gonna do if it happens, Absolutely. or I won't let it happen. No, you are going to have the urges that that is going to happen. You need to plan for all of that. So, for mm-hmm. example, if you know yourself, maybe you follow a program for I don't know six weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Uh, do you have a, a length of time where you'll execute? I, once I I, I don't want to. Always say about my experience because I'm actually okay. very diligent. So once I say I'm going to do it, there's very little you can do so to you not know have yourself. me do it. Yeah. So for you, I would leverage that quality yeah. and say, okay, what's the next thing that you're going to do? Yeah. Before you get bored of this thing, what's the next thing? Yeah. That's a trigger for you. So if yeah. you say you're going to go run a marathon, man, we better pick that marathon. We got to get you training. Yeah. Because you know that you are that person. Mm. And it's not just about leveraging your weaknesses, which is really important, but it's also about putting a plan of action in place. For example, I... This is brilliant, by the way. I'm I'm loving this. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. I uh, hate getting up early in training. I have two little children and a man-child at home who's in residence. (laughs) He's in uh, in Navy SEAL. He's in like med school and we're working on this book manuscript. I do not want to get up at five in the morning. So what do I do? I put parameters in place that I know I'm going to have to get up at five and I'm meeting someone at the gym by 645. Mm. I already paid for it uh, three months in advance. I'm doing it. I'm not going to be that person that doesn't do it. So I've already put things into place and deadlines into place that I'm going to have to execute on. Mm. How does one find their weaknesses in case they're not self-aware enough yet? It's been habitual right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that just started. Mm -hmm. You have to go back and you have to look at everything. And, and, you know, actually pain is a much bigger driver than pleasure. Mm -hmm. The avoidance of pain is a much bigger driver. And I guarantee you, everybody has something that they wish they had done or they wish they had done better. 
whether it's a play in high school or they never tried out for the soccer team or they tried out and they failed because they didn't prep appropriately, find out what that thing was. And there's likely multiple domains of that because it is an underlying current. It's an operating system. You have to uncover that operating system and it definitely comes in patterns and you expose that. And it, you know what? It kind of sucks. And if you are unwilling to do that, then ask the people closest to you because they know it. I guarantee you they will know what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what the BS habits that you have, what you are telling yourself, and also what buttons to push to get the best out of yourself. That's really important to know. Yeah, 100%. And, and we say that. And when you're creating self-awareness, don't only think about self-awareness of you knowing yourself, but ask people around you. So you actually know, okay, this is how I actually show up in the world. Totally. And once you know that, it's much easier for you to calibrate around that. Like you said, you know exactly what your weaknesses are. You work around those weaknesses. Yeah. And the other kind of cylinder of this conversation is that people think or many people believe that self-care and, you know, doing the thing is really about being soft and gentle with yourself and giving yourself grace. There's a lot of like, give yourself grace and give yourself space. I actually think that that is a hindrance hmm. and that it actually shackles people. Talk to me more about that. Yep. There's kind of this, it seems like there's a lot of polarities. Things uh, swing one way and then they swing the other. And you know, if we swing towards this way of softness, which I see all the time, I think it really cripples and handicaps people. Mm. Rather than embracing the fire, going towards the challenge and know it's going to suck. Mm -hmm. And it could be you don't feel like training or all of a sudden you've got 50 pounds to lose. Mm -hmm. Or you've had a baby and now it's two months later and you're tired, you don't want to do this thing. You know, going towards the thing or maybe it's the book that you were supposed to write. But rather than distracting yourself with other things and then going to take a warm bubble bath, that's not what somebody needs to cultivate the best version of themselves. The best version of themselves are cultivated within the arena. And understanding that the discomfort and the friction that an individual feels is not because they shouldn't be doing it, but precisely because they should. Mm. So I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but there was a research that I was doing because like I said, I'm very interested in helping people be able to actually stick to something because most people want to somewhere in their heart, they're not able to find their mm. trigger, if you may say. So one of the studies that I was reading about and that I'm testing out with one of my groups right now is to say that yes, and when we put ourselves through a hard task, like stick to something, and we don't give ourselves space, it can cause frustration. And because of frustration, you start to give up on the goal itself hmm. because you feel like I'm not going to get this anyway, so I'm going to quit. And an alternative model, and I want to hear your thoughts on that. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. An alternative model that somebody suggested is that instead of saying you're going to it's, it's not necessarily giving yourself grace in the sense you said, go take a bubble path. It's more giving grace in the sense of saying, you decide you're going to train three times a week, let's say, or two times a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead of deciding I'm going to train at 6.45 in the morning, you say, I'm going to train two times a week. Now, it may be at 6.45 or 8.45. It doesn't matter. You can give yourself that grace. And what they found is, because people have that grace, they tend to follow through more. Mm. A little bit more elaborate to that study was, instead of, 
two times, you can pass up one of the times, let's say. This is not the perfect example because it was more about if you have five things to do, you would say you can skip it two times and mm-hmm. you are still okay. And more people tended to do that. So at least do three times and so stick to a new habit over an extended period of time. So this was research done over like two years something of mm. who sticks through. Sorry, not two years, maybe two months or something yeah. like that. A extended period of time to actually know if people stick to and complete the task. What are your thoughts on that? It depends on the person. If that's a person's operating system, then great. As long as that you know that you will be able to get it done, I think that that person probably does really well with flexibility. Mm-hmm. I think that it really depends on what the individual's operating system is. Mm-hmm. The other thing is you said something that I found fascinating, this concept of if they're frustrated, they're going to quit. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you. I see it in my daughter all the time. She's three years old. And one of the things that I think about is how can we build frustration tolerance because things are going to be frustrating. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's not about avoiding the frustration and it's not about working around a way so that you don't become frustrated. It's about building the discipline to tolerate frustration. And that is something that I think as a culture, we could do a much better job. And the way in which I think that we do that is that we place ourselves knowingly in frustrating situations and we tell ourselves, I'm not going to quit. This is going to suck and you should bring it on. Mm -hmm. And you cultivate that muscle just like you would be in the gym cultivating a squat. So it it can be very calculated, a, a very particular thing, you know, that can be frustrating for an individual and you do it. And you know it's going to suck. And you still challenge yourself to do it. And you build the muscle to tolerate the frustration. You build your muscle to tolerate boredom. Mm-hmm. And you understand that quitting is not an option. Mm-hmm. That's very fair. That's a very fair expectation. And do you have a way that you've seen people build tolerance to frustration? Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, writing my own book. Mm-hmm. Writing, and you've written like four or five books. <laughs> Three books, yeah. Yeah. There's a frustration in that initial phase of trying to write the book. and That's so frustrating. You know how many times you just want to get up and quit? And the way you do it is you understand that you just sit down and it is, oh, my God, totally frustrating. Mm -hmm. Or even with your kids, like how many times do you have to tell them to uh, flush the toilet? (laughs) You know, just like do that thing. Simple things. Mitigating the visceral response is really valuable. Mm. Mitigating, right, one of the things is we know that as high as you go is as low as you're going to drop. So, you know, there's a dopamine hit. As high as that dopamine is going to go is as low as it's going to drop. So mitigating the interpretation of the experience of everything being high and low and and making a big deal about things. Mm -hmm. I think if we can mitigate the importance of things in the moment. Does that that make sense? Right. So if I sit down and write this book and I'm making it such a big deal in my head, then it's going to increase that frustration as opposed to, okay, I didn't know what the sentence was. It doesn't have to be a narrative about it or some monologue or dialogue within myself. It's just this thing. I'm going to execute this thing. I'm going to sit it down for 10 minutes and I'm going to build my frustration muscle and I'm going to execute on it. 
Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to take a 10 minute break and then I'm going to do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I so hear you and you're so right because I feel it's the same. Like you said, it's the same story when you're writing a book, right. building a muscle, building a business, exactly. working with kids. All, everywhere in our lives, we are kind of building some version of our frustration muscle. And that's where I'm like, it's an interesting concept. I want to explore this more, if not in this dialogue at some point, because it's it's one of those things that, I still don't have a science to say, hey, how does somebody build that? I, I think I have a pretty good frustration level. I can get through anything like exposure. we're sharing. You build it through exposure yeah. and practice. And how do we mitigate that going into the future? I know this is nothing to do yeah, with what yeah, you yeah. Said, sat yeah. down to talk about, but because one of my biggest concerns as a parent is that my kids have an extraordinarily simple life. I had a really tough life as I grew mm-hmm. up. I grew up in India in a house of 23 people sharing the same space. So I grew up in you know tough circumstances. I have a huge frustration muscle probably because of that, because everything was so frustrating around me. But that doesn't happen anymore because life is incredibly abundant at this point. Not just for me, like generally life is incredibly abundant even in Mm -hmm. India at this point. So what is it that you're thinking about, if you're thinking about it at all, is we need to do for the next generation so they can build the frustration muscle because I think there's some learning for our generation in that too. I actually had a great conversation with a friend of mine. His name is uh, Remy Adeleke. And we talked about parenting his four kids. And he is a former Navy SEAL. Now he's a writer, producer, amazing. And he grew up very tough. He grew up in the Bronx in New York. And one of the things that we talked about was the concept that the way in which we raise our kids, things aren't going to go right. And no, you don't get a participation trophy. And the reality is, is it starts with us. It starts with how we model things and how we respond to their experiences. They may not ever have to run through the streets, God willing, right? And I don't want that for them. But there are ways to cultivate some of that strength by just navigating daily life. No, my daughter doesn't get a participation trophy. But the school gives that here, right? Isn't it? I mean, that's where they are so many hours in the day. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, who knows? But when you come home, it's, you know, these are the things that you have to do. You can't always get Mm. what you want. There are rules in, in, in place in this home. This is how we respect people. This is how we clean things. You know, these are the ways that we do. No, you can't have that toy because you didn't earn your allowance. Mm-hmm. And she's only three, yeah. but we're starting yeah. to work on yeah. teaching her these things. It makes perfect sense. And maybe this is applicable to us ourselves as individuals by putting a reward system yes. within yes. our lives to yeah. say, oh, you don't get to do X if you don't do Y or something like that. Absolutely. So it kind of automatically builds small, but over time, a big enough muscle. And how about... Simply saying, you know what, I really want a coffee, but I'm going to not have buy Starbucks for the next week, mm-hmm. even if you can afford it. Yeah. But to actually do something that is uncomfortable or a little bit restrictive, I think is very beneficial. And that might be the way to start building that frustration muscle or, is to just go create restrictions, manufacture them just so that you could. Doing a little something. bit of a hard thing every day or something. And maybe that's not it, but, you know, saying, gosh, I already worked out once today, but you know, I'm going to go do five sprints and I really don't want to do it. I mean, that's something silly, but it's actually creating a bit of discomfort so that you know that you can tolerate it. Mm. And I think that that can be very valuable. Absolutely. I think it'll be amazing. That I think should be a great takeaway from this episode amongst many other great takeaways as to how to build frustration muscle. Let's Mm -hmm. call it that for now. Talking about muscle, I know I've had great benefits of strength training generally in my life. What have been some of the benefits or some of the individuals that you've worked with maybe 
that have had great benefits because they started strengthening. I just want to establish the extreme changes that one can expect. It's very extreme in my life, but sometimes it's hard to communicate because how I feel is even way more than how I look or where I am in my journey. Again, I'm very new to all of this, but because you've had so much experience and you work with so many people, I'd love to hear what you have been seeing. The first thing that I'd like to start with is the top down. And by top, I mean head. You don't build physical strength without building mental strength. The two are connected. Muscle is just the modality that's used to build mental strength. Every single person becomes mentally stronger when they become physically stronger. Obviously, there's a gradation of how that is, you know, Maybe not everybody is bench pressing 300 pounds. You know, I know I'm not, but to become physically strong requires mental discipline. And that is a change that is profound in every capacity. Okay. So number one is mental fortitude and mental strength. Number two, they have more energy. Just from a very fundamental level, they are empowered mentally because they know that they're capable, physically capable. Number two, they have more energy to just do the things that they want to do. They find that maybe they don't need that afternoon cup of coffee or they're waking up with more energy. Their moods are better. We know that muscle affects and, you know, training and exercise affects brain function and mood, which is incredible. Their metabolic markers usually improve, whether it's triglycerides, insulin, blood sugar, all these markers improve. And one thing that is very important is that nothing gets worse. Nothing gets worse the fitter you are. Mm-hmm. That's amazing yeah. to think about it. And it's not like, hey, you don't have an injury here or there, but muscle and training is more impactful than any one medication will ever be because it's our birthright. We were designed to do these things. So the homeostatic mechanisms in place, meaning the things that bring us into balance, are what I believe to be leveraged through skeletal muscle. And it's not solely the physicality. It is also the mental component and the way muscle interfaces with the brain, the immune system, the way it's a nutrient-sensing organ, the way that it will improve Everything as it relates to longevity and the trajectory of aging is through skeletal muscle. If that's not enough, and it improves survivability in nearly all cause mortality, you are never worse off from having healthy, fit muscle, like ever. Yeah. So those are just a a few of the experience. But I, I think the big thing is it creates a discipline, a physical discipline that translates to a mental discipline that ultimately leaves an individual globally strong. Is there, because I I know there's a code that you kind of talk about, which is where we started the conversation, but do you think our fight for obesity must be counteracted today with just getting more people to do some strength training? Absolutely. Yeah, and you've seen that people change in body fat percentage or what about the markers just because they're strength training. Yes. Yeah, And what's your optimal uh, suggestion? Again, I know it changes person to person, but if optimally somebody's hair says, I'm I'm a male, 35% body fat, hypothetically, 
where and how much do I train and what kind of training should I look at? Yeah. Well, the first thing is obviously we can't ignore dietary influences. You, you know, you have to manage your calorie intake. You have to prioritize dietary protein. Protein is necessary for the health and maintenance of skeletal muscle. The fitness aspect, I believe that individuals should be training three to four days a week resistance training. Focused, dedicated training to hypertrophy, which is simply the growth of muscle, right? And they can go through periods of time where they're focused on strength. Strength is typically not thought about, you know, and I cringe a little bit when I I think about these things in isolation because they do intertwine. When you train for strength, you will get a little bit of the muscle growth. Um, Certainly, if you are training for hypertrophy, you will get a little stronger. So I hate to be so divisive in that. But I will say three to four days a week of dedicated resistance training. And that means not necessarily going to a class and doing it in between. I mean, really dedicating the time to be able to build proper movement patterns, to be able to, again, it's functionality. You want to be able to pick up your kids. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to carry your kids, their diaper bag, both, you know, like probably Mm -hmm. both kids on (laughs) both arms. So you want to be able to have functional movement that translates over to you know, being able to carry all that stuff. Strength training. I do think a great cardiovascular base is is essential. So that would be lower intensity zone two, which is so boring. Everyone talks about that zone two cardiovascular training, which is could be 150 minutes a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it'd be cardio mm-hmm. training, whether it's 30 minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Doing By cardio some- training, you mean movement base or running? Well, uh, last time I ran, I hurt my calf. So, no, <laughs> it could be biking. It could just be doing Anything, some kind of cardiovascular, cardiovascular activity. And it's nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. It's um, really working on that cardiovascular system. And again, muscle is an endocrine organ. And when you contract it, whether it's aerobic activity or resistance training, it secretes myokines. And these myokines are proteins. You know, muscle is an endocrine organ. It secretes myokines that go through the body, that interface with the immune system, that help modulate inflammation, lower inflammation. It creates myokines, go past the blood-brain barrier and improve mood, everything, right? So anyway, not to get sidetracked, but the other thing I think is very valuable that builds both the mental and physical muscle is doing some kind of near-max activity. And if you've never done it, I guarantee you, you're going to try to talk yourself out of it every time you do it. And that's kind of a sprint interval training, which is getting up to 90% your VO2 max, like really all out effort. Totally sucks. Mm -hmm. I recommend people do that once a week or once every two weeks. Okay. So this would be trainings like Orange Theory? Would you say that? No, it would be 30 seconds of max effort followed by some recovery. Max effort cardiovascularly, like Mm -hmm. run like crazy and then, okay. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't have to be a run. You know, I used to do it a while ago. I, I would do some kind of activity. I uh, followed some of the Jim Jones programming, which was amazing. And I, I did, uh, it was a max row for time, mm. just max out effort. It was, gosh, you know, it gave you metrics to, to me, whether it was 30 seconds or a minute of minutes, probably too much of really high intense output sustained activity. Okay, I understand that, why. That takes like a <laughs> very much mental focus and nobody is like, ah, oh, I can't wait because it hurts, right? No one's like, oh, I can't wait to do that. But um, again, also working with a trainer, not doing this by yourself. Yeah, 100%. I was about to say, I, I understand. I don't do that by, yeah. I was like, I understand why my trainer would put me through hell once in a while that was that exactly. training. And I was like, why? 
why am I doing this? And exactly. I used to hate her so much. Right, for you it. wanted yeah. to quit. And you're like, this was <laughs> the worst idea I absolutely yeah. have had yeah. in the why last Why are we years. doing this? That's perfect. Yeah. So you probably did it. Yeah. Yeah. No, did it because she would not. She was like, no, today is that day yeah, and it's going to suck. And I'm telling totally. you it's going to suck and you hate today's. Perfect. But today's the day we are doing this. Perfect. And she would not tell me. So because she knew I would be like, oh, I'm busy today. Exactly. <laughs> like, like I, I just oh, actually can't make that training session. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, no, it's exactly. Yeah. That's, a, that's exactly right. Yeah. That would be a great place to start. Three to four days a week of targeted resistance training. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. Cardiovascular activity that's somewhat easy. And then one day, one small chunk, it could be 2% of your training volume. Very small. 2 to 4% of your training volume. Very, you know that high intensity, that max effort makes your body more efficient. 100%. We have a training protocol called 10X that is very yes. much based on resistance yeah. training that you're talking about, which was my gateway to to get started. That's what really got me into that rhythm because it's easy to follow. It's not mm-hmm. overly complicated and we could really get it done. Even starting wise, you could just do it with the app. Literally, mm-hmm. we have a quest for it where you could just follow along and, and get it done. So that was great. And the nuance I wanted to add to it or at least ask about was one of my other friends said that instead of doing high-intensity cardio training, you just should go for long walks. Yeah. There's any truth to that or no? No. 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 Okay. And you have to understand the stimulus and the input is going to equal the output. Mm. There are multiple systems at work, multiple different times, and the benefit that you are going to get from putting in that intense effort is going to be different. The just the metabolic systems are different. Mm, okay. And there's no free lunch, and there's no shortcut, and there's no hack. Mm. To the hack is focused, intense exercise. There's mm. your hack. The mm. harder you can go, the shorter it's going to be, and the more it's going to hurt, but you'll get the mm. job done. Mm. And is it, you said three to four times do resistance training, mm-hmm. go maybe once a week all out and the other ones are cardiovascular activities. Yeah. So you're saying you should train every single day in one way or another. I do believe that movement every day, single day is very valuable. Of course, you do have to listen to your body. Mm-hmm. Not tell yourself that you're not going to train, but listen to your body. And, you know, if you need a rest and recovery day, totally fine. Mm-hmm. So, but do you recommend rest and recovery day or are you saying it's completely person to person? So look at it in your life or? I think it depends on the training. If someone feels and thinks they're putting in a lot of effort, but they're not really, they probably mm. don't need a day off. Mm. Because can you calculate how many days off that would be in a year? So if you calculate one day a week, so that's what? 52, Four, yeah. okay. 52 days in a, in a year. I mean... That's like one and a half months, almost two months. So if you are not putting in effort and maybe your effort is pretty low, Mm. then why would you be taking a day off? Yeah, that's true. I would just recommend training at an intensity that is meaningful and then earning that day off. Yeah, so train with a trainer. Usually they would... I definitely If they have listened to your work and all the stuff that you talked about... Mm -hmm. Hopefully they would. And again, I, I, I don't want to nuance it just so that I'm, I know that I'm not saying something wrong here. But one of the th- philosophies that I've learned about and we were practicing in my training was that you're always trying to do better than yesterday in a way. So it's not that you're saying, oh, if I was doing squat for, say, 120 pounds, right. you're trying to do 125 next time and 130 the next time, unless it is like, okay, you can do it and then you need some time to get Absolutely. over. Absolutely, you are trying but, to improve. And, you know, there's yeah. certain training programs where you're going to be focused on strength. 
And there are going to be other training programs where you're focused on hypertrophy and maybe you're not focused on strength and maybe you're not increasing the weight, but you're increasing the volume. Exactly. Or you're increasing the time under tension. There Mm. are multiple ways to improve your overall fitness. And it doesn't just have to be increasing the weight. So that's right. That's absolutely right. Perfect. Perfect. Anything that I should have asked you, Gabriel, that I didn't? No, I am thrilled to be able to talk about some of the aspects of training, which are more mental and less physical. I feel like it's really a privilege to be able to do that. So I really appreciate those questions. Oh, thank you very much. This is one of those things that has transformed my life so much in the past just a year and a half that I couldn't recommend more. Anybody, if they come to me, I'll like, all the training you can do later. Mm-hmm. Just work on your body first and you'll see everything else kind of just falls. Like you said, if you can get yourself to do the hard thing, mm-hmm. the tr- thing that you've trained most is your mind because I, I you, you are able to find your weakness, work around them, or be able to still do things even if you're like going, ah, I don't really want to do it. That's huge, I mm-hmm. think, in, in any area of our life. Where can people find more about you? What is it that we can yep. learn from you more? I have recently launched a podcast, by the way, and it's called, shockingly, The Dr. Gabrielle Lyons Show, (laughs) just so that people could find it. And uh, that comes, an episode comes out every Tuesday. I also have a YouTube channel and a newsletter that is free and curated of uh, interesting studies that are coming out or things that I think are really valuable. And I also, uh, I have a website, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and I am, people can apply to be a patient. Actually, I have a whole team. I have a great physician assistant, Colleen, and we have a full-time physician named Dr. Brian Stepanenko, a Mm -hmm. former military, and we have two health coaches, Peter and Alexia. We have a whole team. That's amazing. That are amazing. And is it accessible to anyone that wants to work with you? It is. Throughout the whole world, we have patients all over the world. It's amazing. It's all remote right now, and they can go to my website, drgabriellelyon.com, to apply to be a patient. And then, of course, they can find me on Instagram, Twitter, those places. That's awesome. We'll link up everything below wherever we post this uh, episode. So the spelling and everything, you will have a link in the show notes. Please go and look at these websites. Thank you so much for coming in today. My pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you.